Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to Word in Your Ear. I'm going to start with a bit of audience participation. (laughs) (laughs) Behind you. Very good. good. For the benefit of listeners at home, somebody shouted, no, you're not. (laughs) Uh, But the question is, it's a bit of a market research. Who amongst this audience remembers buying a record called Nice Enough... I'm going to ask that question again. Who amongst this audience remembers buying a record called Nice Enough to Eat? Please raise your hand. Uh, We've got probably about a dozen raised hands in in this room. Would anybody care to venture a a guess at what it cost when it came out? 14 and 6? 14 and 6, says Mark Gellin. We think we we have widespread agreement on... 14 and 11. 19, 19, 19 and 11. Okay. okay. Oh, was it 19? Okay. So, anyway, something in that region, and it was for the benefit of younger listeners, it was what was called a sampler album, and it came out on the Island label. And at 1911 or 14 and 6 or whatever it co- cost, it was uh, a considerable bargain to those people who would uh, normally have to save up 32 and 6 or more <laughs> for, a, for a full LP record. And it was a sampler of various island artists. I think Doctor Strangely Strange may have been on it. Heavy think, Jelly. Were I on think it. Spooky Tooth were on it. I think Heavy Jelly. I Traffic. keep singing that same old song. Nick Drake. Nick Drake yeah. was on it. But was the first track on the first side, or was it the first track on the second side? I don't remember. Twenty-first century schizoid man by King Crimson. Yeah. And it seemed to me that everybody who heard that sampler then went out and bought that long-playing record in the Court of the Crimson King, an observation by King Crimson. (laughs) And it came out around about the same time in 1969 as the second album by the band, which I also bought... And I'm sure if you'd looked at the two of them together, side by side, you'd have thought, if one of these groups was sti- was, were to be still going in 50 years' time, <laughs> it would probably be the band, these stolid Canadians, mm. rather than whoever it is 
hiding behind this extraordinary cover of the, of the first album uh, by King Crimson. But how wrong we were, because the group's still going still 50 yeah. years later, yeah. is King Crimson. And the person who's got a lifetime's occupation of documenting <laughs> that career is there, is, there, is there Boswell, I suppose, who, who joins us here uh, this evening to talk about his revised edition of In the Court of Crim King Crimson. Please welcome Sid Smith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's Sid's book. Copies will be available later on. Sid will be very happy to sign them for you. Not least so he doesn't have to take them back yes. to the northeast <laughs> of England. They're heavy. Because they are very heavy. Yes. Uh, but we'll start with the usual questions, Sid. What technology was there in your house for playing music and what was played on it when you were a, a lad? We had um, a blue vinyl plastic mono... Uh, not, it wasn't a dance set. Uh, I think it was an HMV. I think that's where where um, my mum and dad got it from. And my mum and dad were uh, really into uh, Hollywood musicals. Yeah. Um, and a big, big number in our house was South Pacific. <laughs> you can't go wrong with South Pacific. No. Do you know you're the first person to ever mention that? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was South Pacific. And the version we had... Uh, was it, it, it had it was a bit like a concept album actually because it had a book in the middle of it. Oh you know? right, yes, it, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, with, with so I remember that uh, vividly, and then um, my parents were also subscribers to. Uh, it, there was a local shop around the corner which did I don't know like it sold radios and things, and you could also join a, a record club. Uh, and, and we used to have Tchaikovsky uh, and Mozart and things like that. But these were, um, these were seven-inch uh, EPs. Right. They, weren't, they weren't full albums. Um, so you'd get a bit of uh, Aina Klein and Ach music by Mozart. Right. You know, but, but on seven inches. And the other one was Ace of Clubs label, which I think was a Decca. It was a Decca. Yeah. Yeah, it was print. a Decca cheap um, label. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but then the major sort of development, uh, probably around about 64... Um, uh, was the advent of the Beatles. Um, I had two sisters. Um, I had uh, one sister was into the Beatles, and I bet you can't guess the other group that, that my other sister was into. Uh, of course, it was the Rolling Stones. So there was a... Lively conversations around the dinner table. There was immense rivalry, fisticuffs. Um, uh, but for me, it was the Beatles. That was... Uh, I, I just kind of picked all that stuff up. And the first album I ever bought uh, was... Um, Sergeant, uh, actually, it wasn't Sergeant Peppers. Uh, the first thing I ever bought with my own money was the um, the EP set of um, Magical, Magical Mystery Tour. Tour yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then I bought Sergeant Peppers. Uh, so, when did that. King Crimson enter your life? Oh, this yeah. was a, you, you talk about in the book, a life changing experience. Nineteen seventy two. Yeah, it? in I, Newcastle. Well, well, King Crimson first entered my life uh, with that first album. Um, and that was through my sister, who was the Beatles fan, who then developed, who went underground. Oh, did she? Uh, yeah, she, she was a card-carrying member of the underground. <laughs> did she have a great coat? She, she had a great coat, maxi skirt, Very good. boots. 
Um, and she had the, the coolest record collection. And she used to go hitchhiking around Europe and Fantastic. stuff. And she did the whole thing. Was she thing. a student? Uh, no, no, no. She was a secretary at Brims, which was a building firm. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just lived this other life. Yeah, yeah. That? She, w- she would get um, secretarial jobs, get enough money, and then head off. And, and hitch around Europe and right. do all that. The great thing about my sister hitching around Europe, this is getting on to sort of 71, 72, the great thing about that was she would leave her record collection behind, obviously. Oh. So I, I, I just used to pretend it was mine. So in those days, <laughs> I, I'm almost interested in this. How many records made a record collection? Ah, well, probably only about 25. <laughs> that would have been a, an amazing record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, she probably had about, um, she probably had about 20 albums, right? Um, which was a lot, I think. And what were the key uh, contenders? Um, well, at the time, uh, she was heavily into John Mayall. Right. So she had a bit of the old blues thing going on. And here, here was something interesting. So you'd listen to John Mayall and you'd think, oh, yeah, this is great, because I, I wanted to be in that world, you know? Um, and then there'd be Cream, and you'd think, that was, oh, this is all good. Um, and then Bessie Smith, because mm-hmm. um, CBS were doing these in sort of 69, 70. Uh, CBS were doing these sort of uh, double albums. Uh, so there was that... W- and oh, the other one she had was Memphis Slim. Right. And there's a great album called Blue Memphis, uh, which is a kind of like a concept album uh, by, by Memphis Slim. It's got all the great um, UK jazzers uh, and rock players on it. And so that was, you know, that was all through. But my sister got into King Crimson and that kind of, so that album, and, you know, you look at that first album and you think, fucking hell, what's mm, this mm, like? Mm. You know, and actually, it's one of those weird, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today, and we were talking about, like, album covers, which are great, but the music's a bit shit. Um, King, Go on, name names. Oh, uh, we can, there are quite a few of those. Oh, yeah, I mean, how long you got? Um, I, 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 I remember being incredibly impressed by the cover of Argus by Wishbone Ash. Uh, now, be oh, careful. Yeah. And Tread carefully, and yeah. because no, I have no. a man on the, my right here who's going to... No, can, but... He can sing the whole of Argus. Well, no, but that's a love affair that only lasted about 20 minutes. I think I, I, <laughs> I realised the, 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 the errors but, but, of my but, way. But, I re- you know, for a kid, you know, I'm looking at the cover of Argus thinking... Wow, that's really, you know, it's really cosmic. It's got a great vibe to it. And then you put it on, it's, I thought I had a good... You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. what, what? Yeah. And, and so, but the point of the story is, with King Crimson's first album, you put on the first track for side one, and it's 21st Century Schizoid Man, and the cover and the music absolutely married up. You know, there was no, there was no gap between the two things, you know? The, the cover art and the music had is such that, impact. Is that force. still their most famous... Tune, yeah, probably. Yeah, it's it's. And I there mean, can't that album, be many groups where the first track on the first yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, still it, it's it's still bad company. It's, it's still their Isn't it's it? still their best-selling album. King Crimson's yeah, best-selling I'm sure album. It, is. I'm it, sure it, it is. It it you you think hands up in in this room who's got a copy of In the Court of the Crimson King? Oh, it's a forest oh, of hands. Forest of right. hands. Hand, hands up! Yeah. Hands up! Who's bought it more than three times? Oh, oh my God! A, a forest. That's a another lot of forest. Yeah, so, so, so it continues Robert, to sell. Yeah. If Robert Fripp was seeing this here, he'd be, get a very warm feeling, wouldn't it? Same he people would. go and buy the same record he, again. He, he, he would. He would say that. And do you know what? There's a there's a 
a, a new box set coming out later. The, later there's earlier, always uh, another. Yeah. Box there's set. always another box set. So yeah, <laughs> of of that album. Uh, and what 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 we're doing with this box set that's coming out uh, is we've got every single minute that they spent in the studio in 1969, every single minute that was recorded, um, the entire thing is going to be released, but along with loads of stuff that has never... Have you been part of the team doing yes. this? Yeah. Long winter have nights you, will have fly you by. Sat <laughs> <laughs> i got to say, seriously, have you gone into studios and listened to days of mm. kind of... Oh, good yeah. grief. Yeah, yeah. And you I, enjoy I, it? I... I has he got conversation well, 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 on it? Or yeah, is it all yeah, 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 David says, did I enjoy it? Right. The hands up here who knows an album called Earthbound by King Crimson. It's Slightly few. smaller forest, but now, anyway. It's a, it's a badly, badly recorded album. Right. And it was recorded on very, very overloaded, overdriven cassette, right? So it's almost unlistenable. Um, but I had the job to go and listen to every single tape from that tour... And then I had the job of putting together the two CD reissue with all the extras and all the rest of it. It took took days and months. And there's a friend of mine um, who is you know uh, who's come into the process, and he's spent hours and hours and hours listening through to every single thing. Um, and do I enjoy it? If you'd said to me at school who was my favourite band in 1971, I would have said King Crimson. And then if you said to me in 1971, well, don't worry, yes. because, because in 2020, <laughs> you, you're going to be paid yeah. to listen to this stuff, yeah. and you're going to make a living at it. Yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's, let's, just, let's just go back through the King Crimson story for, uh, you know, for fans and for uh, relatively superficially acquainted people like myself. Robert Fripp... Key person here. Um, what's his background? Uh, Robert grew up in Dorset with his sister Patricia, who, uh, for the benefit of listeners, is seen here um, on, uh, I think, was his photo? Somebody in the audience will know better than me. Uh, it was, I think it was taken on Christmas Day, and that's Robert's first guitar. Oh, I see. Um, which uh, had an action that was so high. Yes. He could, but he... he but he learnt to play it. He was also left-handed, um, but the guitar was right-handed, and so he just learnt. So to play degree it. of difficulty didn't put him off. He was. Uh, he well, he he says himself, you know, he was torn deaf and couldn't keep time, um, and, and he was, you know, he was left-handed. And the guitar was right-handed, um, and it, it, he, what what Robert had, uh, even at a tender age, uh, was he had uh, a kind of a discipline to yeah. kind of just figure out the problem. And uh, and and work. He had a he had a even at that age. Uh, was that discipline manifest in other areas of his life or just in music? He was uh, at school. Robert was um, a pretty good all-round pupil. You know, doing very well in all his subjects. He his 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 father was um, was an estate agent, uh, Welsh and Lock, uh, based in Wimborne, and Robert was kind of going to go into the family business. Um, but it, you know, and and he really wanted to be a, a musician. That's really what he, his love was. But he, you know, he felt the dutiful son. He had to go, and he had to you know go and train to be an estate agent. He went to business school in Bournemouth, 
And uh, he did it for a while, and then he just kind of had to go and tell his mum, I can't do it. And, or, uh, and, he, worked, and he spent three years in a, in a kind of dance uh, uh, hotel band, oh, sure. Bournemouth Hotel, well, playing he, just he, jazz. He took he? over from, from uh, Andy Summers. That's that's where Andy Summers worked. Oh, okay. And when Andy Summers went off to join Dan Tallion's chariot... Yeah. Yeah. Zoot Money's big roll band. It yeah. Became, yeah. In all yeah. money. So Robert took over and of course that kind of education where, you, where you're having to, you, you know, you're, you're sight reading Absolutely. and you're playing, you're playing classics, you're playing foxtrots, you're playing, yeah. you know, it's a good grounding uh, harmonically and, and technique as well. You know? So who were his musical favourites as he was growing up? Well Robert, Robert talks about um, listening to Elvis um, and Scotty Moore, and the way he puts it, um, if Robert was here, uh, he, he t Robert tells an anecdote about um, listening to Scotty Moore and, and his life changing. You know, um, so it was it was kind of uh, in, in, and in some of the earlier bands uh, that Robert was running in in the '60s. You know, they were playing. Um, what were the instrumental groups like? The uh, not the Spotniks. Um, oh right, well they. The Tornado, yeah, yeah, ventures, ventures, yeah, that's that's it. Somebody probably checked, right, right, yeah. right. But um, so it was kind of pretty conventional stuff, you know. But all good, um, all about all about technique, you know, and learn and acquiring, um, not realizing in some cases that maybe the the you know the the tape speed had been speeded up, you know. Right, but, yes. But, but, and you were trying to do yeah. the impossible. Yeah, but but but, <laughs> and all, but then managing it, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then they kind of... Uh, Robert, you know, he, he, he was going to leave... Um, he, want, he wanted to join a band, and uh, so he answered an advert uh, which had been posted by two brothers called uh, Michael and Peter Giles, and they'd been in a band called Trendsetters, who were actually quite a successful band, uh, you know, on the circuit, like a lot of bands were, you know, uh, guitar, bass, drums, trombone, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, of course. Uh, and keyboards. Yeah. And um, anyway, the two Giles brothers wanted to do something a bit, a bit more groovy, you know, uh, and uh, so they put an advert for a singing organist. Uh, and Robert applied, being, being a, being <laughs> a guitarist who doesn't guitar sing. Yeah. 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 Perfect, you got the job. And so the three of them... And did of, all sorts of odd things. They finished up doing a Dunlop tyre ad or something. Yeah, they did. That's right, oh, yeah. God, one of my holy grails is to try and find... Um, when I was writing the book, when I was doing the book originally, uh, it was originally published in 2001, uh, and one of the jobs, I came so close... I got in touch with the because Dunlop uh, have a, have an archive, you know, of all of all of their adverts and so on and so forth. And I tried, um, you know, we we got so close, never found the footage of of the thing. But what I did find was I found a set of stills um, taken from the the photo shoot. Um, so by then they were joined, the Giles Giles and Fripp were joined by. Uh, a guy called Ian MacDonald who'd just come out of the, the army uh, and he'd missed the swing in 60s. He was in British Guiana when the, when the swing in 60s was happening. But he was, uh, he was a, a, a really good instrumentalist who could play anything. He could play that table. Right, you know? right. Um, and uh, Giles Giles and Fripp and Ian MacDonald 
the four of them kind of then kind of were the seeds of King of, Crimson. Uh, were sort of the seeds of King so Crimson. So when are we talking about here? 67? 68. 68 is, is when they're kind of coming together. Right. And uh, do they meet Pete Sinfield at this time? Well, they... Pete Sinfield comes into the story. Um, they were writing songs, and Ian MacDonald said, well, I've got a mate who, uh, who, writes, who, writes, who writes words, and that mate was Pete Sinfield. So, um, so who Pete, wasn't really a, 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 he didn't really contribute musically, did he? It was mostly just 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 the lyrics. Peter would disagree with that assessment. I oh, think. Right, would he? Um, but 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 I, f I think you know Peter Peter was um, Peter would come up with lots of ideas, but his Peter's primary function was to um, supply words and illumination and lights. That's right. Yeah. But he's uh, in all. I mean, he was an official band member, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, well, well yeah. he became an official band. Yeah. He originally started out as a roadie, um, and providing a few lyrics here and there. But then he hustled, right. as, as Peter yeah. told me himself, he hustled his way into it. Yeah. But it's not uncommon at the time, was it? Keith Reed was doing the same from Pro Yeah, yeah. And Robert yeah. Hunter, Robert yeah. Hunter for yeah. the Dead, yeah. and yeah. Pete yeah. Brown for Cream, really. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, Pete yeah. Brown very much so. Yeah. Um, and I think for that period, um, the other thing that should be mentioned about Peter's contribution. And I don't think you can really... Um, what Peter had was he... Peter was the only one out of, out of any of them who was really a hippie or, or something near to being a hippie. The rest of them, and I, like Robert didn't know what was going on. Um, Michael Giles certainly didn't. Um, you know, maybe when Greg Lake eventually comes into the band, um, he, Greg Lake's got a bit of a, a kind of a thing going on, and and, and knows a bit of fashion sense, yeah. etc. But but it's Pete it's Pete Sinfield so who, it's, who, who tells him what to look like. It, it, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because they became style guru really yeah. quickly the hippest band in Britain, didn't they? In it, weeks, it, it was it, when sometimes you know I mean I've written a lot about this band over the years. And, and every now and again, you know, somebody will commission you to do a job and they want you to do something about 1969, you know. And uh, so you sit down and you think, the first thing you think is, I've got nothing to say that I haven't said a million times before. But then you look at that, you look at what happened, just sometimes running through the dates, you know. Uh, well, yeah. and, and it was phenomenal that, yeah. that, that, that within... I might get some of the dates wrong, so don't give us a hard time, uh, people. <laughs> but, but, but in... So in, in November 1968, uh, December 1968, Greg Lake gets the call. Greg Lake, at this point, is still a guitarist. And he gets the call from, from his old mate, Robert Fripp, to join the band, but he'll have to join as a bass player because we don't need two guitars in King Crimson. So Greg Lake comes in in December 68, right? In January uh, 1969, so all of the players are now there, right? They're all they're all present, and they're all living in various bits of bits and places in in London. Um, and on January the 10th, 1969, Pete Sinfield finds um, a cafe on the Fulham Road, uh, which has a basement, and so they've got somewhere to rehearse. Uh, on January the 13th, as everybody knows in this room who's a King Crimson <laughs> fan, January 13th is the first King Crimson rehearsal, right? So that's January 13th. Within about three weeks, they've got, like, a queue of record companies 
like wanting to see them because the word on the street is that this band are amazing. Their, 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 their music is is head and shoulders. There's no bluesy vamping going on. No, there's that's nobody. True. There's nobody jamming on a chord. Uh, this music is incredibly structured. Um, but the the amazing thing about Crimson at the time was, is is they've got that kind of uh, they've got the kind of claw hammer effect. You know, you can bash the nail in, but you can also pull the nail out very carefully and uh, and with a bit of precision. And Crimson had that. Uh, the other thing that Crimson had is they actually had financial backing. Yes, because. How could you afford a Mellotron in 1968, or 1969, rather? How could you afford to buy all of that really expensive equipment? And didn't they record their own, their first album them, and pay for it themselves? Am I right? They, the clever thing yeah, about so King they Crimson... Owned the, they could shop it around. Yeah, yeah. The, the clever thing about what Crimson did was... So Ian MacDonald, who's the instrumentalist who had been in the army, he had, a, he had a, a, um, an uncle who was an, who was a, an industrialist... And so they did, a, I've seen the agreement, so they did an agreement. And they, they put themselves on wages. And what the idea was that, because, like, you know, Robert had the view that we should all be, this is the only thing we should be doing. So I don't want anybody playing in a palais dance band like Michael Giles was, doing a bit of extra money. You know, so they all put themselves on a, on a decent wage, um, through through this financial backing, they bought the very best equipment they could buy. So everybody had top flight guitars, drums, Mellotron, as I say, and uh, then they had somewhere to rehearse, and that's what they did. They just and within by by the time I think where are we? February, March, um, March. They play their first um, ever performance, albeit not booked as King Crimson in Newcastle. Oh, right. Aye. Um, and, uh, With the whereabouts? Uh, they, they did it. They, they played at a, a nightclub called Change Is, oh. which was owned by Bob Monkhouse. Of course. <laughs> the Monkhouse connection. The Monkhouse connection. <laughs> and uh, so then they came back. So that's, that's the end of March, right? And then in April, they play their first gig in London. Um, and... and Every like so, their first gig. Uh, there's people in in the audience. There's members of Yes, uh, and various other people, and their jaws are dropped by the precision and the pace um, of and the musicality and the sheer brute force uh, of this band. Um, and and as I say, even by oh, the Moody Blues in April are trying to get them signed, and the Moody Blues say. We want to sign you to our new oh, yes, forthcoming label, um, and they're thinking, "Great, yeah, that'll do. We'll have yeah, some that." Yeah. Now you have to you have to pause for a second and remember, the Moody Blues weren't just any old group. The Moody Blues were a huge, best-selling gold, platinum disc-selling outfit, but they wanted to sign King Crimson to their new label, and the Moody Blues had a producer called uh, Tony Clark. Uh, the, the kind of fifth member or the sixth member uh, of the band. And uh, so for a short while, Tony Clark was on board to produce their first album. Now, this is April, and we're already talking about the first album. And there's some talk that it's going to be a double album. And uh, so by the time we get to April, May, June, 
Um, we're in the studio. In May, we're in the studio, Morgan Studios, uh, with Tony Clark producing. You know, they've done a handful of gigs. Nobody knows who the fuck they are. They do, they're not, like, in the industry. They're not even on the... They're not faces on the scene. And, uh, and then, they, you know, they're, they're doing this session with Tony Clark. It's not working out. It's too expensive at Morgan Studios. So they moved to a... a, a, a a cheaper studio uh, called um, called Wessex Sound, and they, they 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 do sessions with Tony Clark there, and then the band decide that they just don't like Tony Clark's sound. So the band say, "Thanks for all your hard work, Tony, but we're going to do it ourselves." And they're you know I mean think about that. At what's the average age of this band at the time? They're probably 22, 21, yeah. 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Giles is a bit older, but, you know... Nobody that, was much older than no, that no. in those days. But, but the point is, that takes some balls. Yeah. Now, you can't, you, can't, you can't hang out in a London recording studio without some backing. So what the, what the King Crimson managers, uh, David Entoven and John Gaydon did was David Entoven, uh, I mean, both ex-Herovians and, and moneyed, um, what they did was they, uh, they used to work for No Gay, uh, the No Gay organisation. And uh, what they did was uh, David Entoven mortgaged, uh, remortgaged his uh, apartment in, um, it was a Muse apartment, and, uh, and with that money, put the money up to pay for the recording. And then they shopped it around. And they ended up on Ireland. Uh, the coolest, I, the coolest record label. label. I yeah. put it to you that if they'd ended up on the Moody Blues label, we wouldn't be talking about them now. Absolutely. You're totally right about that. It, it's completely the same music. Yeah, it, it just the wouldn't association have with Ireland made yeah. a huge difference. For them. I interviewed a few people. And being on that sample made a massive yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Huge difference. I, I, people, I, I interviewed um, a couple of the executives from Ireland, and they said when... Um, the first person who, who, who went to see King Crimson uh, down to their basement, uh, this was back in the sort of February, uh, was Muff Winwood. Right, yeah. And Muff Winwood's... Um, so tell me, what, it's a great band, what, 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 what do they sound like? He said, well, they're a bit like the Tremolos. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what? So... Anyway, I interviewed some other people from Ireland Records who told me that they just totally disregarded Muff Winwood's opinion, went down and heard themselves, and, and everybody at Ireland uh, knew that they had to sign this band. It must have been Muff Winwood's way of just killing interest in yeah. any band. Yeah, yeah. yeah they said yeah, you would, you'd love them. You'd love the yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was a uh, There was a bidding war broke out. This is a band who's, 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 who at this point have no... Uh, they don't have a song out. Uh, I think by this time they've done the John Peel session. Yeah. Uh, and John Peel described them as the greatest band in the world or something. Yeah, something. I mean, you know... Well, they got, they got all these other artists to write their ads, didn't they? Well, that, that, yeah. that came a little bit later, and that oh, was yeah, part Pete, of... Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend yeah, right, yeah, wrote... Uh, wrote, wrote uh, that was in the uh, September he wrote it, and uh, the idea behind that was Island Records had this idea that what they didn't want to do was they didn't want to sort of cheapen... The, the, uh, the, the, the dignity of the music by, by writing anything as sordid as, as, a, as, a, as a PR. It's great. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> that's so, right. so their idea was that they would only promote their albums 
by giving it to uh, essentially peers uh, to, uh, to like a peer review process almost, yeah, yeah. you know. So uh, I, the idea didn't really take off, and I think Pete Townsend's about the only one who, who did it. Right. Um, but that's why that really advert... the original. Though. It's really, really, really good idea. Yeah. But, but they, they also they were on the bill with the Rolling Stones. Well, though. the Rolling Stones thing was a was a game changer, absolutely. Uh, they were in, and the manager tried to bribe them uh, their way out of the yeah, bill. Yeah, but he didn't have to. I mean, David Entoven uh, had a, a suitcase full of money, five hundred pounds, um, because he knew that they had to be on the bill with the Stones. And um, and to his eternal credit, uh, Peter Jenner just said no. <laughs> I won't have your money, but I will. I will put the band on because he'd heard good things about them. There was so much word of mouth about Crimson, uh, and by well, that this completely by, changed things, didn't it? Well, by by this time there was starting to be a, 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 an appearance in the press, you know. Um, uh, but but it was Hyde Park changed everything yeah. for them, and. Um, you know, I, I hope there's no Rolling Stones fans w in the audience who will be offended by this. But um, do you think the Stones were any good that day? Well, they're, they're, well, they're the Stones, aren't they? I mean, yeah, they, yeah there's they the Stones, but were they any good? Were they, were, I'll tell you who was good that day. It was King Crimson. They got a standing ovation. Right. They, they blew, musically, they blew the Stones off the stage. Um, and they were the only band who got a standing ovation that day. I mean, I mean, by the time the Stones got on, of course, the, the crowd were, the crowd were going bonkers. But, uh, but, but, Crimson were. Um, what what happened after that was, they were playing the marquee, and then they they had you know they walked to Hyde Park on the Saturday, and then they got on and they played the gig, and then uh, then the next night they were doing the marquee uh, as part of their regular residency, and <laughs> how things had changed was. Uh, Ian MacDonald kept a diary for 1969, which is an amazingly useful device. If you're going to chronicle a rock band, make sure that one of the members keeps a diary. Which in those yeah. days, lots of them did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ronnie Woods made a living out of it. And, <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> in Ian MacDonald's diary, um, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, after Hyde Park, the next night is at the Marquee, and uh, you know, did gig, washed hair, got up, washed hair, blah, 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 did gig. Uh, went to the marquee, um, sorry, went to the marquee, did gig, nine chicks came home with me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this, uh, this extraordinary business of the cover of this record. Because by common consent, this is one of the things that sold it. And this is the days there's sure. no video, you know, there's mm. nobody's on telly or anything like that. Mm. How do you get some kind of visual excitement into the marketplace? You do it with album cover. Yeah. Now, this is a unique piece of work, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, Pete Sinfield has to take some credit for this. I mentioned earlier about Pete was a bit of a style guru. So um, the guy who did this painting was... Uh, it's a self-portrait of, of a guy called Barry Godber. And Barry uh, knew Pete because they worked at um, Lions Tea Rooms, oh, right. they, they, but not the not the Lions Tea Rooms itself. They weren't clippies or anything. Or are they called nippies? Clippies? Nippies, yeah. sorry. Um, clippies or bus conductors. Yeah, that's aren't true. They? <laughs> not to be confused. All this in an education too, isn't anyway, it? Anyway, um, and so they're in they're in Wessex Recording Studio, and they need a they need a 
you know, they're, they're nearly finishing their album. Have we got a cover? Well, I've got a mate who can paint. Who does a bit of yeah. painting. He'll do. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. So Barry's a fan of the band, you know, and he's seen them play and all the rest of it. Uh, so he's, been, he's coming to gigs and stuff. So Barry has a pretty good idea of what the band sound like. Uh, there's no brief, there's no design brief or anything, you know. Um, so Barry comes in one day. The band are rehearsing. They're actually, they're actually. This is a true story. They're they're in Wessex recording studio and they're working through 21st century schizoid man. There's a knock at the door. Barry Godber eventually comes into the the large hall uh, down there where they're all there, and he's carrying this big bit of cardboard wrapped wrapped in brown paper and. The band stopped playing, you know, and comes in, puts it on the floor, and the, the five of the members of the band and a couple of other people sort of stand round, you know, and they're looking down at this. They're looking down at the, at the painting, uh, which has become known as either the Screaming Man or the 21st Century Schizoid Man. And they all think, wow. Apart from Michael Giles, who doesn't like it. Right. Um, and... Uh, Barry Gobber's done another painting for the for the for the inside cover, uh, which is a slightly more benign kind of image. And if they'd gone with that as the outside cover, I think the other thing, like you were saying earlier, David, is is it wouldn't have it wouldn't, it have, wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Wouldn't. But that works because you make the point in the book, which is a really good point, that it doesn't have their name on it, and so you yeah. have to open up the double album. Yeah. To find out who it's by, so you've already kind of entered their world. Yeah, yeah. You're already kind of captured by uh, it. And I, there was a bit of controversy about it because Ireland, um, Ireland wanted wanted the name on the bar on the cover, uh, you know, as record companies will want to do, you know. And uh, the band uh, said, "No, we don't want that." And and Ireland really pressed them hard about it. And in the end, it, they said, "Look, this is a deal breaker. We, either, we, we, you don't put our name on it, and if you do put our name on it, we're not going with Ireland." Right. And there had been a bidding war, so Crimson could have walked with somebody else. It would have been a disaster if they'd gone with another label. Ireland were absolutely the right label, and the people at Ireland that I've talked to uh, are are in absolutely no doubt. They've told me that without that record. Um, that record kind of laid the foundation for a lot of Ireland. I'm sure it's sure, yeah, yeah, sure true. Yeah. And uh, David, um, oh God, I've forgotten his name. Betteridge. Um, Domleo. Yeah, David Betteridge, I think. They were trying to. Um, Tim Clark, sorry, it was oh, right, Tim yeah. Clark. Tim Clark was a production manager. So his job was to make sure LP sleeves got printed. And. Uh, he, they couldn't keep up with the demand no. for it. And the other bit of the demand was, um, which I've mentioned in some sleeve notes, and you mentioned in your uh, in your book, uh, A Fabulous Creation, um, available in all good bookshops, <laughs> um, is that this record looked great in a wind, in a shop window. Yeah. It was absolutely uh, astonishing. Yeah, record see. shops did the whole window yeah, yeah, display. Yeah. So, so um, Tim Clark told me they were forever ferrying um, empty album covers yeah, yeah, to yeah. various shops. Rhett Davies, who later produced the King Crimson album, uh, uh, he used to manage a, a branch of uh, Harlequin something Records, like that, yeah. something like that. And uh, he famously uh, got a big joint and sort of put it kind of coming out of the mouth uh, in his window display. 
Moving forward in the story here, we're looking at a, at a contrasting album cover here that is a particular favourite of Mark's and mine. Uh, McDonald and Giles. This is McDonald and Giles because during the first, pretty much the, the first tour of the United States that King Crimson do, they kind of all leave, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Well, the, the, these, these two guys, guys yeah. these guys these leave, leave. Yeah. and go and, and make a solo record mm. on which they appeared, you know, looking fabulously handsome with their two fabulously handsome girlfriends. Yeah. And every every you know young man, any teenager like us would have just looked just at that. Just thought, oh, that's that is the just life. Yeah, that I want to be in this picture. I used Absolutely. to go to record yeah. shops yeah. just to look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was a catastrophic failure, wasn't it? The record. Yeah, yeah. brilliant yeah. cover, but it yeah, just, it was sold about nine copies. It was it was Island Records' most expensive yeah. recording to do. It took weeks to record. Uh, there was immense pressure. On the band, oh, oh sorry, on MacDonald and Giles to finish it, and Ian MacDonald didn't want, you know, he 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 wanted to to make it perfect, uh, and of course, you know, that's problematic for all sorts of reasons. Um, and when it came out, it didn't sell. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, despite the cover, you would think you would have thought. And, and the interesting thing about the cover, it, I mean, it, it's kind of happy and it, it, it's lovely in one way, but it it, it sort of tells its Ian was desperately in love with um, Charlotte Bates, the girl there, and only a couple of, and left King Crimson basically to be with Charlotte because he was out in America for six weeks and he was desperately missing Charlotte. And uh, Charlotte was flown out to uh, New York for two days um, to kind of try and, you know, keep Ian happy. Um, and then she had to go home, and so he then entered into a further pit of depression because he was missing her so much. And within a few weeks of that photograph being taken, of course, the, they split up. They split up. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, um, Mary Land, uh, who is uh, seen with Michael Giles here, Mary Land played the groovy chick in the Dunlop advert. Right. Uh, that's where Michael Giles uh, right. met Mary, Giles Mary Land yeah, on right. the Giles, Giles and Frip. Okay. That's where Mary Land was a, a, a quite a noted actress in right. the West End at the time as well. Um, and uh, her career, uh, and the, the pair of them uh, kind of eventually split up as well. So kind of so, a bit of a sad story. So, but by the end of the tour, Greg Lake is, is on his way, not far from being on his way, isn't he, to join Emerson, Lake and Palmer? Well, well, the Nice were on tour, King Crimson, I should say, were on tour with the Nice. Right. And, and so uh, McDonald and Giles leave Crimson. Greg Lake's thinking, well, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. Half yeah. the band's left. Um, and at the same time, Emerson's thinking about uh, uh, sacking... Lee Jackson and Brian Davison uh, of the Nice because he wants to do something new. Yeah, yeah. And so it kind of it takes them a while to get round. Greg Lake kind of plays it cool, uh, so he actually Greg Lake actually records another album with King Crimson, uh, but but the second album in the wake of Poseidon. But then he leaves. But it's still astonishing reflection on the times, isn't it? People left a band that was so hot. In those days, you know. Absolutely. And, it's, I mean, it's a decision that they've both told me on numerous occasions that they regretted. And it wouldn't be something they'd do now. You know, now, nowadays, they'd, you know, they'd take time off, they'd talk about yeah, it, yeah, they'd, yeah. you know. But at the time... The other, the other thing about it is, it's sometimes when you're younger, 
um, and you're in the moment. You, you know, you don't, you're not worried about kind of things like, well, is this the right decision to make? No, you're just no, going to yeah. make the decision. Yeah, sure. You know? yeah. Um, so it's, they, 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 were, they weren't driven at all by, none of them were driven by um, any thought of money. So it becomes, you know, it's Robert Fripp's group. Eventually, it becomes like a sort of football team with constantly changing <laughs> members, and he's the kind of manager. And what, do you think he was cut out for that kind of role? I mean, you, you never get the impression early on that he was, you know, that that was his thing, that he was no. really a musician. <laughs> you know, the, Robert, actually, you, you do get the impression that he was cut out for that role, in fact, because if you look at through the press clippings, um, Robert very quickly becomes the spokesperson for the group. Um, so he, even in early 1969... A lot of the, I mean, you know, everybody's interviewed in varying publications, but the, but there's a, a fairly consistent voice of Robert <laughs> yeah. in, in a lot of these interviews with like International Times and other mm. other publications. Um, so Robert, when when the band falls apart, you know, Robert's decision is is well, I've got to keep this going because this music is important to me. Um, and the other thing about it's worth saying that the first album isn't a Robert Fripp album by a long chalk. If it, if that album belongs to anybody, I mean it belongs to the band obviously, but if it belongs to anybody, it belongs to Ian Macdonald. Um, the first album, uh, Ian, Ma Ian Macdonald. Without Ian Macdonald, you wouldn't have an album. Right, right. Um, but uh, but so so Robert Fripp takes. He becomes the custodian of, of this entity called King Crimson, which is not Robert Fripp, but is this this name they've given to this benign force that that downloads music into uh, the 1969's world. I want to just move... We're zipping about all over the place. I want to just briefly digress into the, into the subject of, of Robert Fripp as a, as a valued collaborator mm. outside King Crimson. Mm. Because um, he, he's recently instigated an action over uh, royalties for David Bowie's Heroes, hasn't he? Mm. And very supported by Brian Eno. Brian Eno's made, made statements. Uh, and Tony Visconti. Yeah, saying absolutely right. He completely yeah. changed that record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that part doesn't... The, the, the main theme of Heroes, when, it, when, when the, mu the music starts before the vocals come in, that main theme did not exist. Until Robert Fripp flew flew in and plugged in his Gibson Les Paul into the desk, and Tony Visconti said, "Go." Yeah. And they couldn't believe what they heard, could they? No, they they, they couldn't. Uh, and Robert Robert, I think I think I, I think Robert heard. Oops, sorry. He, he Robert um, heard a pass. You know, he so roll the tape. Let's hear it, right? It goes like that, right? Okay, now go, and that's the that's the but line. Is that he came a new up legal with. action, or is that one that he had before it's, he's it's revived? Not, it's it? not a legal action. It's per not. Se, no, but it's looking for featured artist status. Yeah, yeah oh, it's right, basically right. just about publishing and. and oh, okay. It's yeah. about heroes yeah. getting played millions of times yeah. around the Olympics and things like yeah. that. You know? yeah, yeah, So yeah, generating yeah. enormous amounts of money, money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which he is arguably entitled to a bit of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you you. In an ideal world, at the time, he probably should have got a writing credit, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but 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 where we are with it is, um, the, the you know the, the various players 
uh, or, or supportive of, of Robert. I mean, if David Bowie was around... He him, might be supportive as well. He would be supportive as yeah. well. I'm sure he would. So let's talk about your, your extraordinary tome. Aye. Uh, which, which has a wonderful is... quote on the cover. It says, Sid Smith's opinion is worthy of respect, Robert Fripp. He just <laughs> high praise indeed. He gushed. He gushed, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. So yeah. uh, this, the first book was, was completed and published in when? 2001. Yeah, and, and did you think at that point, it's all over? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, in 2001, I don't know if I thought it was all over, but because the band was actually on tour, and where that first book left off, was the band, I can't remember now, but the band were somewhere in America. And uh, uh, it was, it was you know, the email was relatively newish at that point. Uh, and just as I was finishing the book off, I would get the odd email from Robert, or, or, um, you know, sort of answering a query or something. Um, but the book ends with the band still out on tour. Um, and, you know, come 2003... Uh, the band kind of pretty much splits up, and and I thought that was it. You know, I didn't expect King Crimson to, to really return, uh, but <laughs> but they they have a habit of disappearing and then returning. And you've been on tour with them. I have, yes. When? Uh, well, I've been on tour with them a, a few times here and there, but um, the longest run uh, I was I did some work with them in 1998. Uh, that was around the west coast of America. Um, and that was a small. That wasn't King Crimson per se, because what happened in the nineties was uh, King Crimson at that point was a, a, a six-piece, um, and things weren't going so well. So Robert had the idea that we'll break down into what he calls fractals, and so the band would break down into trios and quartets, and each one would go out on tour. So I was out on tour with uh, a, a fractal called Project Four. And uh, there were four projects, and uh, I was with Project Four. So I did a couple of weeks out in the States. And then in 2014, I did the full return of King Crimson, uh, which was extraordinary. So, this so is, you did this six is the, weeks, you were I did say. six. I think and this I did, is the I new band with the three drummers at the front? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So man, yeah. I saw them. Extraordinary. extraordinary. So, yeah. so what's, the, what's life like on the King Crimson tour in 2000? And- Fourteen, you said. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the is it wine, women, and song, or yeah? Well, it's all of that. And I mean, one of my jobs was to get the cocaine sorted out, um, <laughs> and uh, I used to have to chop it, you know. So. Um, or is it people going to their hotel rooms to read Penguin Modern Classics? I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm yeah. afraid <laughs> it is. You know. Yeah. I, 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 is a gentleman I, of a certain age. Yeah. Well, you 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 get a couple of the couple of the guys in the band will kind of go to the hotel bar. You know, right, and, yeah. and they'll have a glass or two, you know. Um, but most of them, um, you know, pretty much go to their room. You know? Does anybody just wander off into the town and get lost or anything like uh, that? You get a bit of that. There's yeah, yeah. confused. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, there is a member of the band, and I will not name uh, not name him, who, who sometimes does get lost. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it, this is not a good rock and roll story, I'm afraid. I, uh, you know, there's there's no wild partying. No. I mean, you know, back in the day, you know, back in 1969, Greg Lake shagged anything that moved, you know. <laughs> and actually, so did Robert. You know, they all did. But, but you know, they're, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the 2000s, you know, I mean, they're... There's a lovely bit where Greg Lake's trying to get 
um, get Robert to, to, to wear more interesting things on stage. Yeah. To get him to wear a top hat or something? Or a yeah, cape he wants him to wear a cape and a top hat. Ah, it's extraordinary. He wants, wants to kind of brand Robert yeah, as yeah. Jack the Ripper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, he didn't go for it. No, amazingly. <laughs> no, well, I don't know why not. Yeah. So is there, is there a manager or anybody like that nowadays? Or does yeah. it, Robert Fripp keeps it going. Uh, well, well the, no, Crimson have a manager, guy, a wonderful guy called David Singleton, who is... Uh, probably far too nice and far too intelligent a man to be a rock and roll band manager, but he's his his skills his diplomatic skills are amazing, um, and his organisational skills are pretty good as well. Um, and combined with Robert, um, Robert Robert keeps an eye on everything. You know, I mean, Robert will look at the bot you know look at the tour receipts. He'll I look bet. at the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he takes it seriously, having been. Uh, in so many situations. I mean, how many times you guys must have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of musicians of a certain age, and the one story, and me too, and the one story that all that we all have in common is, oh, I was ripped off. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, Crimson are no exception to that. Um, so nowadays, you know, Robert, Rob, not just nowadays, but Robert will really keep an eye on things. And, and sometimes he gets a bit of a hard time for that, but I think, well, if I was running a, if I was running a business... And, and touring a, 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 a nine-piece band or whatever it is uh, with all the extra crew and everything, it is a business. It's a, an immense undertaking. And you don't want to be losing money. No, you know, no, why no. would you want to lose money at it? So, you know, you've got to have somebody who will keep an eye on what's going on. So how long do you think it'll go on for? Well, I, I've got a pal and the, the pair of us... And the, if I had a penny for every time... Him and I have said, oh, well, that's it now. You know, that, that's Crimson done, you know. Um, so every time I think Crimson are, are over and done with, uh, you know, back they come. Um, so I would have thought it's, it's, it's 2019, last year, 50th anniversary, that's the end of the band. You know, you bring the band to a, a final conclusion. Um, and, and there's a lovely symmetry because, you know, they're playing Hyde Park in 1969 and in, and in uh, 2019, they're playing Rock in Rio um, in front of, you know, on a, on a televised audience of 11 million um, and, and however many millions uh, out in the arena. So there's a lovely kind of symmetry there in, in, in some respects. So, you know, that would be... But as far as I know... There are there are plans for 2021 even. You see, because they're in the only profession in the world where you can still do it 50 years later, mm -hmm. and there are no recorded instances of people walking away. <laughs> and you know, so I should keep your pen uh, <laughs> at your side, Sid, because the I, third revised. I edition. think the third revised. Yeah. Edition which you will have to take home in a wheelbarrow, yeah. I'm sure. But uh, in the meantime, it's been delightful to hear thank you. about this this story of mere 50 years. Would you please thank Sid Smith? Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.